Hello and welcome to the Boss Podcast, episode 38. I'm Kirk Bailey and this week we jump back to 2017, where Alex Osterwalder takes us on a jobs-to-be-done exercise. Welcome to the Business of Software podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Alex is an entrepreneur, business model innovator and co-founder of Strategizer, a SaaS company that helps organisations develop new growth engines, better value propositions and powerful business models. He is obsessed with making strategy, innovation and entrepreneurship simple, practical and applicable. Alex invented the Business Model Canvas, a strategic management tool to visualise, challenge and reinvent business models. He has held guest lectures in top universities including Stanford, Berkeley, MIT and IMD. This episode features Alex's fourth Business of Software talk, having spoken in 2011, 2014 and 2015 before this one, and then returns to BOSS in 2019 and 2020. Check out businessofsoftware.org slash videos to see his other sessions. Happy listening. I'm going to talk a little bit about what we've learned after doing these kind of books. Most of my time, actually, I don't write books. I'm trying to, to um, convert business executives in large companies to use software, which is a challenge in itself. And brings us to our little topic of, of, um, of uh, not tooth whitening, but of jobs to be done. But I want to start with an exercise. I think it's good to just get, get right into it. So I'm going to get you to do a little task for about three, four minutes. And it's an exercise around, who's you heard of customer discovery, customer um, development, lean startup? Who's heard of that before? Okay, so you're immediately going to do a little exercise in this space. So Dave, on now a software leader, hardware leader at a company called Colgate. You've all heard of Colgate, right? They came up with this new tooth whitening device. Okay, you can make up the features, okay? You're the leader of this team. And you're starting customer discovery, getting out of the building to start to talk to your first potential customers. Here, Gary is the first one to figure out if he and others in the room, but you're just going to talk to him first, would be interested in this device and this technology and this software behind it. Okay? Simple task. Customer discovery. Dave is going to talk to Gary. Everybody's going to do that with their seat neighbor. So you're going to go splitting groups of two. And one person is a person from Colgate doing customer discovery. The other person is a potential customer. Just answers question as naturally as possible. You don't have to lie or make up anything. It's just the, the innovator inside uh, Colgate who has to. Easy? In groups of two, let's get started. OK. <laughs> can, we, can we agree on something that, that you believe in the power of this Swiss cowbell. This is my timekeeper. When I ring the bell, is that OK with you to focus back on me? Hands up if you're OK with that. OK, good. <laughs> Saudi Arabia, I did this. And a guy came up and said, Alex, you can't do that. That's for the, that's for the goats. And I said, yes, but it works. <laughs> and it did. OK, so now why did we do this exercise kicking off business of software? You might find it's a bit weird. But turns out that even for something as simple as doing customer discovery interviews, you can really screw them up. So I want you to think back to the questions and ask yourself, 
did the interviewer mainly focus on opinions? Do you like this? Do you think this is interesting? Is this a good feature? Would you buy this? How much would you pay? These are all opinions, right? Opinions are not very good when you do customer discovery interviews. It's a lot better to ask for facts. So when's the last time you went to Google to search for tooth whitening? That's a fact. Oh, I've never done that. Huh, interesting, right? When's the last time you talked to your dentist about dental hygiene? Those are all facts. So when we do customer discovery interview, simple. Try to go for the facts rather than the opinions. Because what people say and what they do are very different things. So even if you look at the past, you can really figure out what did they do. The second thing here is, I would guess that many of you, because I led you a little bit into a trap, many of you focused on the solution, the device, right? Would you buy this device? Is this thing interesting? And I even led you towards that talking about features. But some of you who've probably done this before, maybe you focused first on the problem, the customer, the jobs they're trying to get done, the pains they have related to those things. And that's very, very important that when you start out, because I said this is your, the first time you're going to do customer discovery interviews, so you don't know anything about them, the customers yet, so you need to start with the customers first. Because if this device, if people don't like it, like I show this and ask, do you, oh, you, were the, you were the customer, do you think this is interesting? If Gary says, ah, I don't like this, you don't know if he didn't like it because of the features, because of the device, or because he doesn't even have the job pain or gain. So what you really want to do is put this in the back of your head and first focus on the customer, okay? So you can still have this as an idea here, but first ask, okay, what are the things that you do regarding tooth hygiene, okay, dental hygiene? Once you've validated the jobs, pains, and gains, you can start with your solution. But in particular, engineers, <laughs> they like to start with, right? And then Lean Startup says, build, measure, learn. Guess what? People tell us build, engineers will start building, right? So you want to keep this in the back of your mind, okay? So just a little start to show you one of the many reasons why seven out of 10 new product introductions, and this is not just software, software, hardware, anything you can imagine, including services, why do seven out of 10 new product introductions flop, okay? Now, you know what this number means? Look around you, seven out of 10 in this room, so 70 out of 100 are working on something nobody cares about. Look around you, <laughs> decide who that is. <laughs> who is working on something nobody cares about? I mean, some of you are actually honest. Okay? And it's not, it's not because we're stupid, it's because the processes we use are often wrong. We first focus on the solution rather than jobs, pains, and gains, okay? So we're gonna try to figure out, just, you know, we're gonna scratch the surface probably, but we're gonna go into how can we avoid this? We're gonna talk about jobs to be done, which has been prominent at uh, Business of Software. So there are a couple of videos online. I'd recommend you go watch those. Some of the, actually, both people who made this popular, Clay Christensen and Tony Ilwick, spoke at Business of Software. So I'm gonna build on their work. Then we're gonna look at the value proposition canvas a little bit. I already spoke about this at Business of Software, so I'm gonna take a slightly different angle on this so I don't repeat myself. 
And then we're going to look at just one or two things, bring it back to this lean startup thing, customer discovery, but also just look at a specific angle, okay? Because this is an entire profession, so I don't think we get everything right yet. Now, let's start with jobs to be done. Let me first kind of start with the roots of this, because I'm building on other people's work. And there's a little bit of a fight going on who invented this concept. So let's just show everybody who was involved in coining this. Tony Ilwick around um, um, outcome-driven innovation, really good work. Rick Petty, Bob Muesta, who also spoke, I think, at Business of Software, Denise Nitterhaus. They started this. So if you're really deeply interested, you can go back to the literature. Then it was made extremely popular by Tony Ulwick and Clay Christensen. Both spoke at Business of Software. They wrote a couple of articles, very successful books, and they made it so successful that it's really now used, and this morning I was talking to somebody from a company who's using this concept, many of you probably. It's really used um, quite a bit throughout the world. So I'll try to give you some different angles on this. So I'm sure many of you know um, jobs to be done. Who of you already applied the jobs to be done concept? Okay, so maybe a quarter. Who of you's never heard of jobs to be done? Okay, maybe a third. Okay, so we have a mixed group, so you can discuss in the break also. I think it's interesting to exchange experiences. Also, what didn't work, because <laughs> the best thing we can do at a conference like Business of Software is learn about other people's mistakes so we don't do them, because it's expensive. So please don't just share your successes, share the things you screwed up. That's the most valuable thing you can share with other entrepreneurs. I would have saved a lot of money in my uh, <laughs> career as an entrepreneur if I had um, listened more to other people's mistakes. So traditionally, if you look at marketing, you know, there's this whole idea of personas. We figure out, OK, who is this person, age bracket, social criteria. And then we ask, well, what does this person want? This is, let's say, 20th century marketing, 20th century customer discovery, what we're going to try to do is not ask ourselves, what do you want? What does our customer want? We're going to try to figure out what are the jobs our customers are trying to get done. This is not a small thing. It's a big shift, and I'll show you why in a second, okay? So everybody knows this quote. It's not even sure that it existed. Henry Ford, you know, if he had asked people, do, you know, what do you want? They would have said a faster horse. Turns out, he never probably said that. But it's an excellent quote, right? <laughs> so let's still use it. Because the point is, if you ask customers what they want, you're asking people who are not experts on the solution to come up with a solution. They won't be able to do that. But they are experts of what they're trying to get done, what they're trying to achieve, the pains that they have that are holding them back from achieving something. Users and customers and clients are experts in the jobs they're trying to get done. They're not experts of the solution. That's us here in the room, right? So if we understand what our customers are trying to get done, then we can really figure it out. So who of you, if you're honest, before when you did your customer discovery interviews, which groups focused mainly on what do you want, focused on the solution and opinions? Hands up. Okay, so some honest people in the room, okay? <laughs> but those of you who are better, okay? Big group here appears, asked, okay, what are you trying to get done? What are you focusing on? 
So I didn't emphasize the title of the talk too much because I didn't want you to get the exercise immediately right. Because if I had said, jobs to be done, jobs to be done, in the tooth whitening exercise, you would have went right into that, which is the right behavior, right? But pedagogically, it's better to let people fail, you know? Okay, so, <laughs> bad Swiss humor. But it actually works to teach people things, okay? So, Tony Ilwick says, well, focus on the jobs that customers are trying to get done, not what they want, okay? Don't ask what they want. Don't try to figure out what they want. So, we're gonna focus on the jobs, and what's happening now in marketing and in software development and with users is that we're starting to learn that we can segment customers not based on their characteristics, but based on the jobs they're trying to get done. So often, you know, you, you might be um, segmenting your customers into large customers, medium-sized customers, and small customers, and that can make sense sometimes, but sometimes you will realize that some users in a, in a medium-sized company and some users in a large company have exactly the same jobs to be done. So sometimes it might make more sense to focus on the jobs. And you might have some features or maybe even some value propositions that focus on the jobs, not on the type of company. When it comes to pricing, maybe it might be slightly different. But it's not so easy, right? So we have to think about these things a bit more deeply, okay? So, job segmentation, pretty interesting. So what is this jobs to be done thing? Okay, I don't have my computer here, so I'm gonna just um, definitions. It's basically uh, what customers are trying to get done. Tasks, problems, needs, etc. But here's what I think is interesting and what's important. There's also a specific context, okay? In which context are they trying to get done, things done? Simple example, when you're making a phone call from a hotel, from an office, or while you're driving, very different context, so making a phone call, the job, will be performed in a different way. So you do need to really frame the context. In software, very same thing. Obvious, right, if you have a field, you know, sales force outside in the field, different context than when the same sales force is in the office. So when you're framing the jobs, you want to make sure you understand in which context your users and customers are performing that job. Now, why is it so important to understand jobs? It's because jobs don't change that much over time. But solutions do. What you offer them, the value propositions, the features in your software, they do. So a beautiful example here is the music industry. So let's take a silly, simple job. This girl here wants to listen to music. Let's look at the solutions that she had access to since 1983, okay? Some of us remember 1983. Some of us in here apparently don't. Okay, so there used to be this thing that was called records. Okay, I don't know how you do this with the pointer here. Um, then we had, um, uh, so here's CDs, so that was cassettes before. CDs is just this small sliver, 0.5%. And now let's look at what happened over the next 20 years. What happened is that CDs started to op uh, eat up cassettes, and cassettes were eating up vinyl. Okay, CDs got so strong that they ate up everything else. Okay, CDs as a solution made everything else disappear. The vinyl going away, cassettes going away. Okay, and then slowly, now in 2004, CDs are getting eaten up by downloads, music downloads, music videos. Okay, so everything changes 2012, 2013, and then 2014, we have this kind of picture. 
and now it's, it's different. I didn't update the graphic. But things are going on really, really quickly in the solution space. But if we understand the jobs to be done and the pains and gains related to that really well, we can act a lot faster. So that, our understanding of the customer won't change. That's something you need to have a very strong map about. And even if you, with your solutions and value propositions, you change, your mapping of the customer should be something that you understand throughout the company. Because that is actually not so, it's not something that changes so quickly, okay? So it's very important to have a map of your customer's jobs, pains, and gains. Now, some of you probably discovered the jobs to be done uh, concept to this milkshake video. Who's heard Clayton Christensen, Harvard professor, talking about why people hire milkshakes, okay? That's why I'm not showing too much of it, but still, it's pretty interesting to understand this thing, just to repeat, you know, the magic is in repetition, as Dan Pink likes to say. When they did some research with these consumers of milkshakes, and they asked them, what do you want? They said, chocolatier, fruitier, cheaper. They asked them, what do you want? And they did all that. And guess what? Zero impact on results, just to repeat this. It's not about talking to customers, it's about what do you ask, okay? So then they got out of the building and they asked, well, what's going on here, okay? What are the jobs are these customers are trying to get done? And they started to observe. The same thing in our industry, you start observing how do people use existing software today, existing features today, maybe yours, maybe the competitors, you just, you just need to be an anthropologist to start with. In their case, what did they observe? The story is well known. Well, the people would come before 8 o'clock, they would buy their milkshake, drive off again. And then there was a the second thing they, they observed, that at 4 o'clock, same customers would come back, but with their children. Okay, So let's focus on this. They realized that what these people were trying to get done is just to quickly grab something to eat, drive off and go on their commute and have something to eat. Okay. So they understood that, they changed the milkshake, they made the shake thicker so you couldn't drink it as quickly in your car, they put some little fruit chunks in there, and they made the, th the straw thinner. <laughs> You'd say, yeah, but that's just gimmicky. Well, it turns out it actually made a huge difference. They increased their sales by 10 in particular also because they realized their market is not just milkshakes, it's all of these things. They're competing against bananas. If you haven't seen the video, it's quite funny to see a, a Harvard professor talk about bananas, donuts, milkshakes, bagels, and Snickers, okay? That was the market. So same thing in, in our industry. When we provide certain solutions, think a little bit out of the box. What are the other solutions that are getting the same job done, okay? Might not be one-to-one -one kind of uh, competitors. Okay, so I'm going to get you to work on a little exercise in a second, but let's just bring it back to our jobs. So who have you had to travel to get to the conference? Hands up. Okay, great. Ask yourself, what did you pack for this or your last business trip? So you might hopefully have some fresh underwear with you, okay? So changing into fresh clothes every day, that was the job. The solution is to bring fresh underwear or to throw it into the you know, laundry of the hotel. Then maybe you packed, uh, you know, if you're in business, sometimes you want to pack a nice Swiss watch. So nobody wears a Swiss watch to read the time. You know that, right? <laughs> you have a Patek Philip to show how well you can read time. Okay, so maybe you want to look successful with colleagues. Maybe you made your, you know, some new pictures, put them on your iPhone or Android phone. So a different kind of job. 
So what I want you to do, just with your seat neighbor, very quickly, I'll show you, okay, this can go deeper. Jobs to be done for a business traveler. We come to the conference. We need to stay somewhere overnight. We need to reserve our accommodation. We want to feel connected with home. We need to sleep and get some rest. Get over jet lag if you're coming from the U.S. You want to feel safe. Okay, you want to eat. You want to look good with clients, etc., etc. Certain different jobs to be done. I want you, with your seat neighbor, to brainstorm very quickly. See who can do this fastest. 20 jobs to be done in this context. Air travel. I got Swiss chocolate with me, so write down whoever gets to 21st, that group wins Swiss chocolate, which is basically, this is access to heaven, okay? It's not just like if a Belgian tells you their chocolate is better, they're lying. Okay, so very easy. Brainstorm. List all of the jobs to be done you have to get done when you travel from A to B by airplane, okay, in the context of air travel. Right? Take a piece of paper, scribble it down. Who gets to 20 jobs first? Let's go. But you need to write them down. 20 jobs. Okay. We're done. We're done. We're done. Okay. Swiss chocolate is gone. You can stop. Challenge is over. Okay. Now, what I want you to do next is actually ask yourself, which job types did you focus on? Okay. So, job types, some of you who know the theory, some are purely functional jobs, right? Getting from A to B, checking in, that's all functional stuff. Those of you who've already done this, hopefully, you already, you already came up with social jobs. Like, why do people buy a Patek Philippe or a Rolex? Not to read the time. The functional job, not so important. Social jobs are about how others perceive you. And in software, even if you're in B2B, you want to make sure you, you focus on the social jobs. Oh, how am I perceived by others if I buy this kind of solution, if I use this kind of computer whatsoever? So focus on the social jobs as well. Then there are the emotional jobs, right? Feeling safe. That's related to myself. If I sell investment products, well, probably the emotional job, not being on a roller coaster or investing in exciting new startups, that has a very, very... Big, uh, big, big role to play. And then you have more of the supporting jobs, which help you get the more functional jobs or the core jobs done. I want you to quickly discuss how many non-functional jobs did you come up with. So look at your list and identify if you came up with any social jobs or emotional jobs. Okay, have a quick conversation, just 20 seconds. Okay. So, this is actually non-trivial stuff, right? Because when I look in practice, when people start with uh, jobs to be done or our value proposition canvas, they stay much too superficial. And okay, in software, we can talk all the way down to features, but we can also talk about customer segmentation, right? And this is a, a business conference if you want, so we need to play the whole range, all the way from product management to the more strategic decisions on which customers you focus on. If you don't have 150 jobs per customer, you don't understand your customers. What we've seen is that people are much too super superficial. And I'm mentioning 100 to 150, so that's what Tony Ulwick, you know, one of the founders of the whole concept says it. When they, when they study customers, and that's what they do for a living now for 20 years, they really go deep. So we often stay too superficial, 
And we often don't focus on those social and emotional jobs. Even in business-to-business -business software, you can be sure there are tons of social and emotional jobs. You're selling to a CTO or a CIO, the chief information officer. Guess what? One of the emotional jobs is that they're becoming irrelevant because everything is being outsourced, right? And everything is software as a service. They don't have a job anymore. That's a very emotional job, okay, that you need to understand. Okay, so we already did um, travel exercise two, a bit faster than my slides, very good. So now, what we also want to understand is the priorities. Just understanding the different jobs is obviously not enough. So there's a whole series of different things you can do um, that, you know, in the whole lean startup um, 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 so, um, literature you can find. I'm going to give you one example. Full disclosure, I have a tiny stake. I'm helping these guys. It's a, a company called ShapeScale. They're building a scale that has a strong software component and the idea is that you can visualize a person and then not just get the weight and kind of the fat and, and muscle mass, but you can really get a 3D image and you can follow over time how your body evolves, right? Now, you could come up with thousands of features in this space. The question is, what are customers trying to get done and which stuff should you focus on? So one of the things that they did is they went into the jobs to be done concept and they really focused on jobs, pains and gains. They used all the tools from, from a lean startup to value proposition canvas and business small canvas. Very, very, very good behavior. So let's look at this tool quickly, what, what they're trying to do and then how they, prior, how they figured out which jobs to focus on. Imagine you step on a scale that not only reads your weight but also scans your entire body in just a few seconds. Once your skier has synced with your smartphone app, you know exactly how your body has been changing over time. You will be able to visualize where you've been gaining muscle and where you've been losing body it's fat. It's a bit unfair to show At that last, image, right? I mean, I was you can stay in control of your fitness goal. I was trying to tell them, shape well, scale, take, take more normal launching people. this spring. <laughs> okay, so their question was obviously, what do we focus on Number one, what are the jobs our customers are trying to get done? And they had four segments that they identified. And how should they prioritize in terms of developing features on their, in their software? So they used something called card sort. So they would talk to customers. They did some of this face-to-face -face and some of this online. They would just make little cards for different jobs to be done. I'll show you in a second. And they would ask customers to order them, okay, just to, you know, force rank. And then, it's not just about the ranking, it's about the conversation you have with your users at the same time to understand. It's not just the list of priorities, you'll see patterns there, but try to understand, well, what are they really trying to get done? And in their case, so they came up with these uh, different cards here. It's really nice because it would make it easy to understand. In this case, they kind of mixed the jobs to be done with a solution to a certain extent. So you'd have things like tracking fat, tracking muscle, measurements, time-lapse videos, scary stuff, right? Okay, specific goal, you know, to get a job done in terms of muscle mass and so on. Then based on this, they talked to customers and they could really start seeing the tops and the flops. Okay, they did a lot of this with really thousands of users for different segments and they could start to get a better understanding. Because I can tell you in this space, hardware prototyping is damn expensive. You can waste millions. So before you go and prototype anything, build anything, 
you really want to focus on the jobs, pains, and gains first, okay? Not the solution. So, um, they're launching, they just launched now and starting pre-sales. Okay, so that was kind of an introduction to jobs to be done, maybe some flavors that gave you some new ideas, so we're in the nuances here. Now let's take this to the bigger picture to your value proposition. Because jobs alone is just the beginning of the journey. How are you creating value for customers is the other part of that journey. So let's just quickly Every day look companies at this. design products and services to improve their customers' lives. But 72% of new product and service innovations fail to deliver on expectations. This means that customers don't care about 7 out of 10 new products introduced to the market. Yeah, we've seen that number scary. It doesn't have to be this way. Just like you create value for your business with a business model canvas, there is in fact a tool to intentionally visualize, design and test how you create value for customers. It's called the Value Proposition Canvas. The Value Proposition Canvas is composed of two parts, the Customer Profile and the Value Map. With the Customer Profile, you describe the jobs your customers try to get done. Jobs can be functional, like getting from A to B, social, like impressing friends and colleagues, or emotional, like gaining peace of mind. You highlight your customers' pains, which annoy customers while trying to get a job done. Pains and negative outcomes that customers hope to avoid, like dissatisfactions with existing solutions and challenges, frustrations, risks or obstacles related to performing a job. And you outline customer gains which describe how customers measure the success of a job well done. Gains are positive outcomes that customers hope to achieve, like concrete results, benefits and even aspirations. Use the customer profile to visualise, test and track your understanding of the people or companies you intend to create value for. It's a map that becomes clearer the more you learn about your customers. Okay, so that's what we're going to focus on for a bit here. So we had the jobs to be done. We played around with that. But when you study jobs, you want to understand how customers measure success. What are the outcomes they're trying to achieve? How do they measure it? What are the results they want? Down to quantitative results in terms of time, percentages, dollars. That goes for features all the way to more strategic things. Okay. And then you also want to understand how they measure failure. What holds them back from performing a job well, okay? So you want to complement that jobs to be done part with how they measure failure and how they measure success. Then you get a rounded picture. If you have that map and you evolve that map, you will be a lot likelier to develop good solutions, okay? Outcomes, so this is based on uh, Tony Ulwick's um, Outcome-driven innovation, how do they measure failure, how do they measure success, okay? Now, if we just quickly, quickly go through a high-level thing with, you know, not very many um, um, sticky notes, if you take Tesla with a Model S, who was their initial customer that they focused on? Well, it was a male in the U.S. with an income of $100,000 or more. They would just look at a couple of jobs here, commuting to work, some occasional long-distance trips, you know, differentiating from others, you know, showing, hey, I have a cool electric car and it's fast and so on, so the social jobs. If we look at the pains, it's related to how electric vehicles were perceived at the time when they started out. This was the kind of stuff you would get, right, coming right out of Switzerland, not necessarily, oh, that was a French one maybe, even worse. So, <laughs> sorry for the French in the room. Okay. Um, 
then you know they would need to focus on well what are those those pains at that time also meaning risks or things that people think about electric vehicles that they would want to avoid so fear of dead battery frequent charging geeky perceptions i did this at sap and then when the, i got them to put up stickers in the right boxes and then one engineer said alex but geeky perception is positive right and then well look at the customer segment there and ask yourself do they want to be perceived as you know geeky probably not right so it depends on who you're talking to if something is a positive or negative outcome so in terms of gains they would understand that for this customer segment performance is huge design is huge okay they're not looking at the traditional buyer or potential buyer of an electric vehicle they're just looking at the typical car buyer in that segment who is more likely to buy a German car than any kind of other car, right? Meaning Mercedes, BMW, et cetera. Okay, so now you could order this and just come up with the priorities, right? Kind of stack ranking, or you could, you could do the, the same thing with the card sort. But there's also something else that you want to think of. Not just how your customers prioritize jobs, but what you should focus on as an entrepreneur, as a software developer, as a, or as an owner of a software business. Which ones are the high-value jobs? And the high-value jobs are not necessarily those that the customer puts on top, okay? So I'll be a bit provocative here. Forget the customer perspective for a second. Look at the business perspective. Obviously, it includes the customer perspective. So if we look at what a high-value job is, it's a job that is interesting for you as a business or as a software you know, product manager to focus on to address um, as an organization or as a product team. Now, that means it's important, tangible, unsatisfied, and lucrative. So you're taking into account some customer aspects, but also some competitive as aspects. If it's a highly satisfied job, others are doing really well, well, you're probably not going to focus on it. There's little value in differentiating there, okay? So, what do I mean with that? We're going to go through each one of them, and then you're going to do a little exercise. High-value jobs means it's important to customers, it's tangible to customers, and I'm going to explain this in a second. It's unsatisfied, and of course, hopefully, it's lucrative jobs, right? That they're willing to pay for in one way or another. So, let's go through this before you do an exercise. So, let's look at important jobs, okay? It's jobs, yes, in this case, customer perspective, they go all the way to the top. How do you identify if they're important or not to customers? Very simple. You look at this part here. If failing that job leads to extreme pains, then it's an important job. Okay? It's not just how they rank it, but it's the pains related to that. So obviously, a security breach at a bank, that's an important pain. Okay? So some obvious stuff here. In your case, when you do this with customers or users, it will be a lot more nuanced. Okay? So I'm just giving you some big picture examples here. If not just the problem side, so sometimes people always say, oh, we're going to focus on the customer problem. Your customers don't just have problems, they also have positive objectives that they want to achieve, right? So when we design solutions, we also need to focus on the upside. So in this case, a job can also be very important if failing that job has an impact on not achieving certain gains. So of course that turns into a problem, but it's about the gains. So here, a sales force, you know, getting more revenues, hitting their bonuses, 
That's not a problem, that's a, something they want to achieve. And if you're working with a sales force, obviously you want to know, okay, how much is that bonus? How much more is important to them? 10%, 20%, 50%, do they need to double their quota, etc. okay? That's a high value job. That's a pretty easy one. Here's one that as strategizer in our company, we underestimated for a long time. How tangible is a job? So some jobs are actually not so important, but they're present all the time. And that's why they kind of become important. So what I mean with that, you can see or you can feel the pain often and strongly. So guess what? The daily email avalanche that is coming down on you. Emails are not often not that important, but they're a real pain for many of us, right? Who has an email pain? Okay, good, right? Who thinks Slack is going to solve their email pain? <laughs> A controversial topic, right? Okay. So the other side of it is can you feel or see the gain? Like, you know, why why is Instagram so addictive? Because you can see the gain, you can feel the gain. It's a small thing, not important, but it's there, it's present, it gets us hooked, right? So in this case I took uh, anesthesia because I want to show you a little example that's just very, very, very interesting to understand. Okay, so here's something that's very important. That in a surgery room, doctors and nurses, that they wash their hands. That has a huge impact, right? That's very important because, you know, um, um, the patients won't be infected and they won't die. Seems like an important job, right? How big is the pain for the surgeon if the patient dies of an infection a, a week later? Is it a big pain for the surgeon? An immediate present pain? Terribly to say, but it's not. They can't see it, they can't feel it. Maybe they might not even know it because it's not in their department anymore, right? Okay. Now take this one. So this was in the 19th century when they operated people without anesthesia. Was the pain to the surgeon, I'm not talking about the patient here, was the pain to the surgeon present, immediate, you bet, okay? So adoption, and here's you can read all about adoption theory, the adoption was obviously a lot faster of anesthesia than of a simple best practice that would save lives. Intriguing, no? That means how tangible is a pain or a gain? That one is often underestimated. It's a very, very powerful thing in the software business in particular because that's how you can get people hooked. Seems trivial, not often followed. And for us, that was probably losing three years or four years in our whole entrepreneurial journey, thinking that an important job is important enough without it being present and, and tangible. Strategy, nobody gives a shit about strategy, okay? Because it's not on nobody's job description. It's not tangible and present every day. So, unsatisfied, this is an obvious one are the pains unresolved. So here I took a silly example, aging, right? When you're a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, you either work on aging or on launching rockets and put them into space. Okay, those are the two big unresolved pains you focus on. You see my Swiss humor is not very good. <laughs> you did laugh, that's nice of you, okay. So, and then they're unrealized gains, a very obvious one again, okay? Instant translation, there are not a lot of good solutions out there, though they are, are the first ones. So this is the obvious thing, but it's in combination with the others that you really can make a difference. And then the last one here 
Is the job lucrative? Okay, helps understand if it's a high value job. Meaning, if there are a lot of people willing to pay a little bit, that's a lucrative job. Or if there are few people who are willing to pay an insane amount of money, right? Traveling to space. I have some friends now, their passion is to travel to space, right? So they put down ten thousands of dollars to travel to space. So on their own, some of these are obvious, maybe not the, you know, kind of a tangibility of a pain, but it's together that you really identify the high-value jobs. So we're going to distribute, we can distribute these uh, little sheets now. So you're going to do another exercise. Just listening to me would be boring, right? So learning by doing, you're now going to take two of your travel jobs, okay? Two of the travel jobs you came up with in groups of two. You're going to put them here. So can everybody just give me a second? While you're getting this, you're going to score those two jobs. Can everybody listen? You get one for each, but you work in groups of two, okay? Doesn't matter if you, you can download the, those on our website. So they're for free. Okay, you pick, can everybody listen? Shh. You pick two travel jobs, pick two interesting ones that you think, yeah, those are really important. And then you give them a score from one to 10, okay? So you, you pick two or three and you score them and then you add up the score. You could also weight them however you want. You just pick two or three jobs and then you score their importance, their tangibility, if they're satisfied or not, and lucrative, okay? I'll give you three minutes to do this exercise. Let's go. Okay. Okay. So, <laughs> some were asking about what does unsatisfied mean? It means, well, no other you know, competitor or no other solution is out there that really solves the, the job well, okay? Now, this is obviously not an algorithm, <laughs> but it's, it, it's a series of questions that really allow you to ask, should we as an organization focus on those jobs or not? So remember what I said, of course you want the customer understanding, you want to understand, is that an important job? But it's often not enough to just understand if, that, if that's important for customers. You want to take your perspective as a company with that great understanding of your customers and ask, is this a high value job? Meaning, this one would be really interesting for you to focus on. It's very, very important because we, we hardly make the first step understanding customers, but that's not enough. The second step is, what are the strategic decisions you're making? It's not every feature you want to solve. It's not every you know, customer job you want to help with. It's those that are important, tangible, unsatisfied, and lucrative, okay? So, little just, you know, food for thought to have better conversations among your team, but also with your customers. This will allow you to ask better questions when you're talking to your customers. Doing customer discovery interviews is a very, very sophisticated thing to do when you do it well. Okay, so, we looked at customer jobs and we try to understand what are our gains that you know our customers want, what are the outcomes they want to achieve, and what are the pains that they have that are holding them back, okay? So mapping customer insights could look something like this. You can do it in software, print it out, and then when you talk to customers, you'll say, okay, I think this one we're pretty right. You know, 100 of our customers said they have that particular pain, that particular job, etc. So this is a real one from a company called Gore. They make Gore-Tex. 
Anybody ever heard of Gore-Tex? Okay, this is a materials company. They do tons of stuff. They have tons of these, and they start, you know, um, marking them up, saying, oh, 11 of the people we talked to in B2B, they have this particular um, pain. And then they say, oh, well, what if we could relate the jobs and the pains? So if we look at that particular job, then these particular pains relate to that. So they're starting to mark up the different jobs, pains, and gains. Pretty interesting in the field. Now, other ways to kind of identify the pain. So just showing this one, so you're creative in the way you talk to users and customers. I like this one coming from Innovation Games from Luke Homan, who actually I think was at the Business of Software two years ago or so. You could ask yourself, okay, what, is, what are some of the important jobs of our customers? Then you put a speedboat on the wall, and you tell your customers, okay, if this is your job to be done, what are all of the anchors, the pains, that are holding you back from doing that job well? And then they'll come up with all of these pains, and then you can say, well, those that are really, really holding you back, you put the anchor a lot lower, okay? So you're starting to see visually, you can have a playful conversation with them. Now, to a certain extent, that might seem a little bit, you know, um, gimmicky, but actually just asking won't give you the same feedback than when you do it with some kind of visual artifact. These are really powerful little tools that you can use. So I think the most important here when we do customer discovery is that we remain creative. We don't just ask questions, but we try to use different kinds of tools, including off, obviously call to action testing to figure out jobs, pains, and gains of our customers. And once you have a really good picture of that, you can start putting up you know, all of these customer profiles. You can start to organize them, and you'll start to see patterns. And once you start to see those patterns in the jobs, pains, and gains, when you talk to hundreds of users, then you can start designing your value proposition. There's an amazing, insane amount of work that going, goes into understanding users and customers well, okay? And we often don't do enough, though it's now becoming a real profession. So let's look at the second, the second part. second part of the canvas is the value map. With it, you list the products and services your value proposition builds on. You describe in which way these products, services, and features are pain relievers, how they eliminate, reduce, or minimize pains customers care about, making their life easier. And you outline in which way they are game creators, how they produce, increase, or maximize outcomes and benefits that your customers expect, desire, or would be surprised by. The value map makes explicit how your products and services relieve pains and create gains. Use it to design, test, and iterate your value proposition until you figure out what resonates with customers. You achieve fit by creating a clear connection between what matters to customers okay, and how your products, services, and features right? ease pains and create address gains. Some pains and gains. Great value propositions target essential customer jobs, pains, and gains, and do so extremely well. Your customer profile may contain countless jobs, pains, and gains, but your value map highlights which ones you intend to focus on. Don't forget. Okay, so some of you have seen me talk about the value proposition canvas, so I'm just gonna give you a quick example and then move over. So here, if we take go back to our Tesla example, well, there was the Model S, and then they addressed certain of the pains down here. So definitely, you know, the battery capacity, the free charging, which they're actually starting to change now. Free charging stations are, you're going to have to start to pay for that. And then here, the luxury image, 
okay, which will push away the SAP engineers, but will attract the customer segment that they're looking at. And if we look at the gains, so one more here, the size of the car. If we look at the gains, they really focused on what these customers here want. It's performance, number one, some aspects related to the range of the, uh, of the car, but then another important one was here, design. So when they were designing the car, they actually had in the courtyard for the designers and for the engineers, they had uh, BMWs and Mercedeses. So every evening, the engineers could have a different experience of a German car, okay? Not a French car, not an American car, not a Japanese car, a German car. So they were very specifically competing against uh, German cars. And then here, this is now a lot more a software product, right? You can get better parking, you can get more speed. So cars, hardware is turning into software. You know this whole story, right? That hardware, the hardware business or hardware sector and the software sector are becoming one. Again, medical devices, et cetera. So beyond the kind of business to consumer. And then here, the last one, it's actually rated as the safest car, not just the safest electric vehicle, it's rated as the safest car, whatever the press, the US press tries, us, tries to make us believe. So question is, is there a fit between this? Well, if you look at the results, it, it's clear. They haven't just outsold actually all other electric vehicles, but they've outsold the other cars in that category, meaning Mercedes, BMW, et cetera, okay? And you know probably when they launched the, la the new model last year, they pre-sold in the first week over 300,000 cars. Pre-sold. People put down money. That's spectacular, right? That's worth billions of dollars. What Elon Musk did actually is he took that, that kind of money, went to the banks and said, um, we don't have the factories yet to build those cars. Can you please give us a couple of more billions so we can build those factories? Okay, so this is customer discovery on a different scale with a call to action. Okay, I just made four billion by pre-selling a couple of cars. So fit, uh, this is an important concept. When we look at the jobs our customers have and when we look at the pains and gains, and here I think we don't go far enough. We need to be able to quantify not just our solution, how fast you know, is our solution, how good is it in terms of quality, we need to be able to quantify pains and gains in terms of dollars, percentages, or time. How much more do our customers want in terms of percentages or dollars or time? How much less? And we don't do this well enough very often. So if I go talk to business people or entrepreneurs and ask them, okay, how, is your, how are you creating value for your customers? They will be able to quantify over here our solution is this fast, this good, this much better. But this much better only means something if it's relevant to customers over here. So once you have those numbers, you can understand how does my solution or value proposition eliminate, decrease, reduce, or minimize pains. If you don't have numbers or concrete instances over there, you can't come up with that. And the same for gains. How do I create, increase, improve, or maximize the gains over there. So I need to understand as much as I can in terms of quantification over there of pains and gains. And again, think Tony Ulwick, outcome-driven innovation. Your customers are very good at formulating how they measure failure and how they measure success. They know how to do that. If you ask the right questions, you can get that. Okay?
So here, if we, oops, sorry, that was a bit fast. So here, I just had one in my little example. We had quantification here of the, the gains. Turns out, actually, they don't drive, most people don't drive more than 30 kilometers per day. But the gain they want to have in their head is an independence of their vehicle of over 300 kilometers. So what they do and what they want or what they think they need is something else, okay? So we focused on the value proposition here, but never forget, as a business, you can even have the best solutions. <laughs> if you don't have a great business model in the right environment, you're not going to succeed. So what I'm really passionate about with these tools is that we need to navigate between different levels of abstraction. And here we're talking jobs, here we're talking value proposition, which is embedded in a great business model, which is embedded in a competitive environment with legal aspects, etc. Okay? Follow me on this? This is when you get into the Champions League, you understand this, what the best entrepreneurs in this room are already doing. Okay? So, last exercise. Got another 10 minutes to go. I think we'll finish a little bit early here. When you do lean startup, who's practicing lean startup customer discovery in their organization? Say, really, we're, we're doing this, not practicing in the sense of we're starting. Who's doing this? Only two. Everybody else, they just make solutions and then figure out if it's going to work? Come on. Is that, is that true? Hard. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> so now I understand that statistics even better. Seven out of ten products, let me remind you, they flop. So look around you. In this room, it seems to be nine out of ten. Okay, bad joke. So when we go from idea, when we go from idea, I like to call this idea to profit, with the software we're building, we're marketing, we're selling. When we go to idea to profit, at the beginning when you do something new, when you start out, you don't know if it's going to work, right? If you're honest. Even if you're experienced. Actually, the more experienced you are, the harder it's, it's to admit that you have no fucking clue. Sorry, I'm in Europe. I can swear again, right? <laughs> I came back from the U.S. Until uh, I get civilized a bit. Okay, so when you start out, Uncertainty and risk is at its maximum. You're starting with a new idea. You're launching a new business, a new software, a new feature. Uncertainty, if it's going to work or not, is at its maximum. So your only task, your only task is to decrease uncertainty. It's not to build anything. Your task is not to build. Your task is to learn, okay? That's what the whole lean startup concept is about. And how do you learn? You know that by spending small amounts of money talking to 100 or to 1,000 customers. And then only a little bit further down the road do we start building something. Even wireframing takes you know, designers and time, etc. So you slowly invest more money. And then you build real prototypes. And then at one point, you move into execution when you have enough evidence. Okay. So this whole lean startup thing is not about doing 10, 20 interviews and saying, oh, we got it. No. It's serious stuff to de-risk the new things that you're doing. Okay, and then you go further down and you can spend more money. Now, let's do a little exercise. A real company coming out of Stanford, again, it's hardware and software combined. It's a space I find pretty interesting. So these guys here, Stanford engineers, they were going through Steve Blank's class, Ceres Imaging, and their idea was to create this drone and this drone would help them do precision agriculture. 
So hyperspectral camera, you know, flying over farms, getting images, and helping the, farm, the farmers with data. Okay, sounds great. So this is what you call precision agriculture. It's a market that's really rapidly growing. So if we look at the business model canvas, and I'll keep it simple since we didn't talk about the business model here. They're targeting farmers. The value proposition is drones that deliver crop data, and they want to sell that data. We move into this value proposition canvas while they're focusing on these main jobs here, managing the fields, forecasting production for the farmers. I'll keep it simple with two panes, disease and profitable harvest. And they would say, okay, we're gonna help them with our hyperspectral imaging data. We're gonna allow them to do targeted interventions and we're gonna allow them to improve their harvest. Straightforward, right? Okay, so what do they do? They got out of the building. They listened to Steve Blank. They said, wait, we want to do this you know, thing with the drones and we're going to deliver more data. What do the farmers say? Of course, we're interested in more data. So what does that mean? They said, okay, well, this is our, our value proposition, our hypothesis. We can build a drone that delivers the images. We can stitch together that software to, to get the image from the, the field and we can get that right data to the farmers. So how do you test that kind of value proposition? They thought, okay, we gotta demonstrate that we can make this drone work and we gotta demonstrate that the software can work. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna buy a drone, we're gonna buy a hyperspectral camera, we're gonna buy the imaging processing software and we're gonna engineer that all together. Well, guess what? It's very costly and it takes a lot of time. That's the worst way, obviously, to test if there's a market because they're practically building the thing. But if you tell Stanford engineers, you know, building something, build, measure, learn, guess what Stanford engineers do? They build. Who's from Stanford here? I've got to be careful what I'm saying. Okay, so then they go back to class with Steve Blank. And anybody who's Steve, seen Steve Blank, you know that he can be pretty violent when you don't practice lean startup. So he's told them, well, are you sure you want to build all that stuff? So I'm going to get you to do a little exercise. The basic thing you need to do when you have an idea for new software, even new features, in this case we're going to take this value proposition, you need to ask what needs to be true for your idea to work. Software feature, software, or an entire business. What needs to be true for this to work? That's how you define the hypothesis. So here, around this idea, I give you these hypotheses. I'm just going to give you 11. Last exercise. I want you to identify the top hypothesis. Just pick the top three that if you were these guys from Stanford, which hypothesis would you test first, okay? So you just enumerate the top three. Pick the three numbers. In groups of two, I'll give you just a minute to discuss, okay? Let's go. Last little exercise. How, which ones would you test? Which top three hypotheses would you test? Okay, so the reason I'm getting you to do this little exercise is because it's one of the biggest, biggest mistakes that we see when, when people you know, talk about jobs to be done, value propositions, and then they wanna go and test. They don't prioritize the most critical hypothesis. Those that are top, that if that isn't true, everything else doesn't matter. And of course, it's not building a drone, right? That is the first thing you want to test because maybe there's just no market. So in this case, 
the top ones that you would want to identify is farmers are interested in data about fields and crops. Who took that one as number one? Okay, I mean, this is not an exact science, but you can come up with one or two. And then farmers are willing to pay would be another one that can be pretty interesting, right? And who picked drones can deliver images as the top hypothesis to test? Okay, are you starting a business? Hopefully not, okay. <laughs> Oh, got a lessons learned here, right? That, so it's actually, I'm not, I'm not joking, I'm joking for you, but I'm not joking. A lot of companies run out of money and go bankrupt because they're testing expensive stuff first. This is serious shit. Like, that's the reason why we have, you know, seven out of ten. If you look at the sti statistics, a lot of companies go bankrupt because they run out of money. Not because they were stupid, but they started with the most expensive one. So... I'm out of time, so we're almost done. <laughs> Good. So starting to test, you know, the most critical hypothesis, and you could go towards pricing or so, and drones would be a lot further down, okay? So what you want to do, what they did in their case is they went out of the building, they talked about their drones again, and what did the farmer say? I really don't care if you use drones or whatever. By the way, why don't you use these, you know, these planes that fly over the fields all the time? Ah, so that was an aha moment. Turns out there are 5,000 planes who fly over the fields already all the time. So guess what they did? They said, well, you know, maybe it's a bit different. We'll use the existing aerial infrastructure. We'll demonstrate that we can actually collect the data. However, and we'll just, you know, investigate if people want to pay for that. So now we have a cheap experiment that we can do quickly. And guess what happened to these guys? They actually turned this into a business that now uses the planes, okay? So their entire business shifted away from drones. Obviously, they're Stanford engineers. They were not very happy that they couldn't build a drone. <laughs> but they could build a business, right? So what's more important? <laughs> Can we build it or should we actually do it, okay? So let me finish up. You always want to test desirability, viability, and feasibility. And unfortunately, sometimes we get so excited about feasibility, can we build it, that we don't get excited enough about should we build it and actually is that viable, okay? So desirability, really focus on that. Seems like a trivial lesson, but how many times do we focus on can we build it? Because we love building stuff, right? So desirability here, again, value proposition canvas. That's it for me. Thank you very much for your attention. How would you like to get FaceTime with some of the world's leading thinkers? Welcome to Boss Masterclasses. We've rounded up some top experts to lead deep dive discussion sessions with up to 12 attendees per session. Each masterclass is split into separate parts to give you time to digest and mull over some of the information and allow you to follow up at the second session. You'll also leave with new tools, skills, and ideas to take back to your team. Boss Masterclasses are available now, all led by experts, all designed exclusively for you. Visit businessofsoftware.org masterclass. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.